Um, <clears throat> so the first thing I want to say is that I am no expert in prayer. In fact, very far from it. In fact, I hardly ever prayed um, until a few years ago when this incident occurred. And um, the reason I really didn't pray was because I felt like I really had no reason to pray. It was nothing that I wanted for. I grew up in a good, loving family. I had great education. School was easy for me. Um, Played lots of sports. I was reasonably good in a few. Um, Got a scholarship to university. I breezed through that, went to medical school where I wanted to go. Met the love of my life here in Halifax and had two great kids, uh, healthy and happy, and got accepted into a uh, military surgical program and um, finished that and then got posted to the flagship hospital in Ottawa, National Defence Medical Centre, where my patients were Prime Ministers and Prime Minister Gretchen and his wife and ambassadors and their families and astronauts like Chris Hadfield and our new Governor General, Julie Payette. They were all patients of mine. So I figured, wow, why would I need to pray about anything? I've got this all under control. Until uh, the Lord sent me just a little lesson in humility around that time. came in the form of a 40-year-old gentleman from from Cole Lake, Alberta. He was an Air Force navigator, and he had um, he had really bad sinus problems. He has uh, bad sinus infections all the time, so every time he'd fly, he'd get these horrible headaches, and even get some swelling around his eye, and it distorted his vision. <clears throat> so he was this was potentially a career-ending thing for him. And as I looked through his file, he'd had seen five other doctors and had five other surgeries in various places and still having major issues and my initial thought was well he just didn't have the right surgeon he needed to go to the best that was why I was there so I did his operation and uh, I used a technique that we'd just learned here in Halifax we were one of the first universities to train in the endoscopic sinus techniques so using a telescope could get very, very far back into the sinus cavity. So, you know, through your nose, you can go all the way back between your eyes, about 10 to 12 centimeters. So you're right in the center of the skull. And um, so that's where I was um, fooling around. And uh, there was quite a bit of bleeding and uh, more than I expected. And I was able, when using some creative packing techniques to get it to stop and I figured I must have evulsed or torn one of the arteries to the back of his eye. Um, But those are, you can usually get those under control, they'll stop bleeding, they're not big. Um, And I managed to get them unpacked and home uh, for three days and I figured that, okay, that was fine. But three days later he came back and he was bleeding really heavily again and we had to transfuse him and Packed them again, and that's when I started to get a little worried that this was something worse. And uh, I called around to a few of my colleagues, and and uh, we got them uh, investigated with some uh, angiograms, which you know are X-rays where you inject dye into your uh, carotid arteries and follow it up through your brain. And what had happened is on the left side, 
had actually torn the, the, uh, the lining off of his carotid artery right beside the back of his skull, right in the middle of his head. So he had normally those injuries are lethal. They just bleed into their brain and the brain swells and they die right on the table. So that was the first miracle that he was actually still alive. And so I didn't know what to do at that point. I called all around the, the country and and the only place where they even had an idea of what to do was in, in Toronto, <coughs> they had a neuroradiologist that would actually be able to block off the artery on one side with a balloon and then hope that there was enough blood flow from the other side to come across at the top of your brain. There's two little communicating arteries. I promised James I wouldn't get too technical, but yeah, I have to just explain why I was so scared. Um, so the carotid artery is about the size of your baby finger, and you have one on either side of your neck, and it takes two 90-degree turns behind your ear. That's why you can hear your heart pulsing in your ear sometimes. It takes another 90-degree turn up towards the middle of your brain. And uh, the two communicating arteries are you know, a little bit not even as thick as your shoelace. They're, they're tiny, and there's not a lot of blood that flows through there. So hoping that he's going to get enough blood flow from both to both sides of his brain from one carotid artery was, was, a, was a stretch. So we flew him uh, urgently to Toronto, and I flew with he and his wife. And, uh, and just before he went into the procedure room, I went to visit his wife and explained to her what was going to happen. And she was really calm, and she sat down and asked if she could pray, which I thought was pretty amazing considering how um, afraid I thought, well, certainly how afraid I was. And she <clears throat> prayed for him and for God's grace, but then she prayed for me. And she prayed that I would accept what happened and that I would continue to, to operate and help people. And that really, really hit me that why her husband was possibly going to be injured or even worse, and that that was my fault, and she was praying for me. So I went into the procedure room, and I was watching the monitors. As the, the uh, dye was being injected, I could follow it. <coughs> and uh, he was awake um, with an EEG monitor watching his brain waves, and they're getting him to count down from 100 backwards, subtracting three. That's what we all do when you've had a few of these done your mental health exams. That's what they do to test your, your cognition. So he's counting backwards, and I'm watching the, the dye go in, and they block off one side. <coughs> and then is when I really said my first real prayer. And I prayed, not for me, but I prayed to God that, that I wasn't in control. I thought my whole life I had everything under control. And this was one of the first times that I actually realized that he was in control. And I had to give up control and accept the result, which I did. And then I watched the die go on the other side, <laughs> and it was probably only 10 seconds, but it was the longest 10 seconds of my life until the blood started to go across to the other side. 
and he kept counting, and he never missed a number. And all that was happened is he had a little numbness around the inside of his eye where that part of the brain had been damaged from lack of blood flow. But he had perfect vision and could, got off the table half an hour later and fully coherent. And uh, he uh, sent me a Christmas card that year thanking me for all I did. And uh, I... Uh, I published that article, much to the uh, chagrin of the military lawyers who said this was a bad idea. <laughs> and we published it, and it was uh, published in several surgical textbooks as a teaching case on how to manage these types of potentially lethal complications. So that's still out there and still taught in medical schools uh, around the world, actually. Um, so now when I go to God in prayer, I, I start with, hello God, it's Ian, your humble servant, still trying to do my best. And my surgical colleagues all say, well, how can you not be in control? And I say, well, this isn't a new concept. The father of modern surgery, Ambrose Paré, in 1560 said, I just dress the wounds, God heals them. So there is, a, there is a, a, a scripture that actually points this out. Um, it says in 1 Peter um, 5, 5, Clothe yourself with humility towards one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility uh, was my great lesson. Thanks. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for the fact that your son humbled himself. He became one of us. He lowered himself below the angels in heaven and came down into our world. And as a result of that, we found the answer to the sin problem in our lives. And we found the answer to being able to live victorious for you here in this world. But Father, we thank you also for the lessons that you give to us in our lives. And, and I want to thank you so much for that powerful lesson that was revealed to Ian because it's so easy for us to think, I can do this on my own power. I got this one, God. But there are many times in our lives when we don't have this and we're only doing what we are based on the power that you give to us. So, Father, I, I just pray that all of us will have those aha moments where we will realize how insignificant we are and how great and powerful you are. We want to thank you so much for these opportunities that we have had to be looking into this model prayer that your son gave to us and Father, as we look at the final segment here this morning, we're asking that you would guide us and that you would give us understanding. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So listed up here on the screen are what some of the early church fathers referred to as the seven deadly sins. Now this list isn't in the Bible as such, but it, it 
and it isn't an exhaustive list either, but these are areas where we are most frequently tempted to mess up. And I want you right now, just in your mind, don't shout it out, but in your mind, choose which two of those areas are the biggest problem for you. Which are those areas where you are most vulnerable and where you usually fall? And then I want you to do another thing. I want you to choose the one where you're least likely to stumble. We need to identify our strengths as well as our weaknesses. So identify in your mind the one that doesn't tempt you. Now, for me, that is sloth, which is laziness. I'm not very often tempted to be lazy. Even that week that I spent in Las Vegas with my wife while she was at a convention, and I just golfed and read and worked out in the gym, sat around the pool. That wasn't even sloth. That was just one week off. That's all that was. My two areas of weakness, none of your business. <laughs> but being in ministry all these years, like so many of these things just get kind of knocked right out of you. But I, I will admit that lust is one issue that I deal with. It's probably because I'm a man and we live in a society where there are so many provocative temptations everywhere I'm watching a really good football game, and then it's commercial time, and it's Victoria's Secret models with almost nothing on. God, I don't need to see this. But, but I want you to just identify in your minds the two things that you battle with the most. Like maybe it's pride. That was Satan's downfall. Maybe it's greed, because greed actually undermines contentment. You just need to have more. Then maybe it's envy. That's usually kind of a, a tandem temptation to greed. You want the material things, and then you see that other people have them, and so you're envious of them. And then anger. We can take comfort in the fact that Moses had some trouble in that area, but he was severely disciplined by God. Lust. Like one survey revealed that 97% of men admit it to experiencing that, and the other 3% admit it to lying. So that puts <laughs> us at about 100%. And when we think of gluttony, we usually think of overeating. But it, it can apply in many other areas as well. It can be overindulging in drinking, in shopping, <laughs> recreation, I'll admit that one, like Facebook, computer, Pinterest. And some people battle laziness or sloth like they're just tempted to be complacent to sleep in to just kind of procrastinate and put things off now regardless of what you defined as your area of weakness this exercise illustrates that all christians are tempted to do wrong and i doubt that any of you looked at that list of seven and thought eh, no trouble with any of those and maybe some of you have looked at that list and you go Oh, wow, I'm struggling with all of those. I have to battle temptation every day of my life, and I think most of you do. And look at what Peter had to say. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners, and if you're in one of our life groups, one of the questions you'll answer this week is, who is this 
uh, actually written to, so I'm giving you a hint now, it's written to Christians. And he says, to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. So the Christian life is a battleground. We're in this battle with the prince of this world, Satan, and his forces. And in this breakthrough series on prayer, we've come to this final part in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. And Jesus said, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now this is a complex phrase, and as we think about what it means, we'll realize that if we can pray this section properly, it can really help us to live a victorious Christian life. To lead us not into temptation obviously doesn't mean don't lead us any place where we're going to be tempted to do wrong because God sometimes sends us into places where there are serious temptations. Like Moses experienced that when he went to deliver the Hebrew slaves from slavery in Egypt. And Jesus, after his baptism, we read in the Bible that he was led into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan. Jesus led his disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane. And then he said, stay alert and pray that you will not enter into temptation. And he knew that that evening he was going to be arrested in that very spot. He knew that they would be tempted to fight with a sword. He knew that they would be tempted to run away. He knew that they would be tempted to deny him. So he said, pray that you do not give in to this temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So if you follow God's will in your life, you will experience temptation. But he leads you to worship like we are here this morning. But you might be tempted to be inattentive. He leads you into some kind of ministry, but maybe you're tempted to be prideful about that. He leads most of you into marriage, but maybe you're tempted to neglect your mate or even quit on that marriage. So God does lead into places where temptation can easily surface. But get this, it's not wrong to be tempted to do evil. Like temptation is like a call to battle. And the wrong comes from allowing our passions to take over and then giving into those temptations. So when we pray, lead us not into temptation, we're not praying, God, lead us into places where we're completely exempt from any desire to do wrong because that's unrealistic. And the prayer also isn't, Father, don't you entice us to sin. Because the Bible tells us that God doesn't sin and he doesn't tempt us to sin. Uh, look at James 1.13. When people are tempted, they should not say, God is tempting me. Evil cannot tempt God. And God himself does not tempt anyone. But people are tempted when they, their own evil desire leads them away and traps them. So when you're tempted to get involved in road rage and don't say, God, like why did you create so many horrible drivers? Or, or when you're tempted to envy, you don't say, 
God, why did you make their children so talented and beautiful and mine so average? Now, I've never said that about my children. At each wedding ceremony of my three daughters, I talked about how each of them was the most beautiful and the most talented and smartest of all three daughters. And each time I got in trouble from the other two. They didn't remember that I said that at their wedding as well. But the Bible teaches that there are three sources of temptation. The world, and that's the peer pressure that comes at us from all angles. Then our own evil desires, the flesh, drag us down. And then the last one is the devil. And he uses his supernatural prowess to persuade us to sin. Now this prayer also doesn't mean don't allow any trials to come into my life. The word for temptation in the original language, is actually the same word as is used for tests or trials. And so some people suggest this means don't lead me any place where my faith will be severely tested. And they compare that to an athlete who says to the coach, oh, coach, like please don't give us any wind sprints after practice today. Or, or they compare it to a student who says to the teacher, please don't make that test too hard. So some people think it means, Father, just take it easy on us. Protect us from all painful experiences. But the Bible teaches that God actually occasionally sends us difficult trials to discipline us, to strengthen us, to enhance our weakness. And one amazing example is Abraham. In Genesis 22.1, after these things, God tested Abraham's faith, and he did that by instructing him to sacrifice his only son Isaac on the altar. So Abraham had heard all the promises from God that this son was going to be the father of this great nation. He was going to have all these descendants. So he fully believed that he was going to take his son's life knowing that God must be going to bring him back to life again. So God sent that severe trial. Abraham passed the test. Yet it would have been wrong for Abraham to pray, like, God, please don't allow any trial to come into my life because that trial proved his faith. James 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance so we shouldn't pray, don't lead me into any trials, when those trials may be the best thing for us. Former President of the United States Theodore Roosevelt once said, don't pray for lighter burdens, pray for stronger backs. So we understand, lead us not into temptation to mean, keep me from self-imposed and unnecessary temptations. Keep us so close in following you that we can call on your supernatural power over temptations. Let's just imagine that you go to Toronto for a convention, and at the end of the day, you run into a friend from high school, and you start talking and renewing that friendship, and then the friend says, hey, why don't you come over to my place for dinner? Now, you've rented a car, and you say to your friend, well, I have no idea how to find your place, and he says, it's pretty complicated, but why don't you just follow me? 
Now you're acknowledging your complete dependence on him. You're saying to him, the traffic in Toronto is horrible. I'm not accustomed to this type of traffic, but people can wedge in between us and I can lose sight of you. So please make certain that you keep your eye on your rearview mirror so that you don't lose me. And then you also recognize that there's a dual responsibility, that you have a responsibility to be faithful in following him. I don't know if you know Toronto or not, but you're driving along the Gardner Expressway, and then you see the Rogers Center, and you go, wow, that's where the Toronto Blue Jays baseball team plays. So you think, I'm going to get off at the next exit so I can go look at that stadium. And while you do that, you think, well, that my friend, you know, he, he'll just stop at the side of the road and just kind of wait for me to come along, or he'll come back here and, and find me. Like, you're being presumptuous if you do that, and you're actually inviting a self-imposed disaster. So when we pray, don't lead me into temptation, it's acknowledging that we are vulnerable, that we are weak, that we depend upon God and we realize that there's so much in this world that can just kind of wedge itself in between us and God and block our view of him. So we're saying, Father, lead us with a sensitivity to our weaknesses. Help us to stay close to you so that we don't get lost. Now it's also saying, please don't let me get into a situation where I'm not likely to be faithful to you, Lord. Do what is necessary to help me not bring self-imposed temptation on myself. We have a quote here from Bruce Wilkinson who wrote The Prayer of Jabez. And in that book he said, Most of us face too many temptations and therefore sin too often because we don't ask God to lead us away from temptation. We make a huge spiritual leap forward Therefore, when we begin to focus less on beating temptation and more on avoiding it, the most effective war against sin that we can wage is to pray that we will not have to fight unnecessary temptations. And God offers us supernatural power to do just that. So lead us not into unnecessary, self-imposed temptation and deliver us from evil. Now, in the New International Translation, it says, deliver us from the evil one. So there is an evil one that we are fighting. Like the Bible refers to him as Satan, as the devil calls him a murderer, a liar, a thief that has come to kill, to steal, to destroy. And Satan despises God so much that he wants to kill the relationship that you have with God. He wants to do anything he can to wedge himself in between you and God. He wants to kill your sense of joy. He wants to kill your assurance of salvation. He wants to destroy your witness to the outside world. And Peter even refers to him as a lion. Like 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Control yourselves and be careful. The devil, your enemy, goes around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to eat. Now, I occasionally will look at the Discovery Channel, and one time I saw this feature story about lions. Now, when this animal gets hungry, they are vicious and merciless. They sneak up on a herd of animals, 
and they usually kind of determine which one might be the most vulnerable. It's usually the younger or maybe one that is injured in some way. And then they start to focus on that animal. And they eventually isolate that animal from the herd. And a lone wildebeest is the most vulnerable. And the lion chases the animal until it's exhausted and can't defend itself anymore. And then the lion jumps on its back and strangles that animal, puts a chokehold on it until the animal suffocates to death. Like that animal is powerful and it's dangerous. And Peter says, the evil one, your enemy, the devil, is like a lion and he's roaming around. He's looking for someone to eat. And he's going to pick an area in your life where you're most vulnerable. He's going to come. He came to Jesus after 40 days of fasting. And he basically says to him, aren't you hungry? He attacks when we're isolated from other Christians and when we can least likely call upon reinforcements. Our enemy shows no mercy. He wants to kill. He wants to steal. He wants to destroy. And it's all for selfish purposes. And when he's finished, he's just going to leave your carcass there for the vultures to pick over. So when we pray, deliver us from the evil one, we're saying, Father, I recognize that I am weak. I can't defend myself against such a powerful adversary. I must depend upon you to protect me against the evil one who's just lurking there, waiting to attack me. In the 50th Psalm, David wrote, Call to me in times of trouble. I will save you, and you will honor me. So Satan is the evil one, and he works through evil ones. Now, I don't expect that many of us here will actually have a personal encounter with Satan. Satan isn't like God. Satan can't be everywhere in the world at the same time. There's a big word for that, and it's called omnipresent. So he has to work through other people to accomplish his wicked plans. So he works through people. He works through evil ones. He has his demons that will do the work. In 2 Thessalonians 3, And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. So there are devious people who are agents of Satan, and they lure unsuspecting souls into hell. And they read you well. They're fascinating. And they work to their selfish advantage. For you young people here at the front, it might be a classmate inviting you to attend a wild party. And their intent is to involve you in something that will eventually destroy you. It might be a college professor who intrigues you by his attack on established truth. And he's devious about it. And he knows that he's leading young people and their mind astray. And he knows that he's presenting a hypothesis as a fact. But he's out for reputation. And he usually gets delight in destroying your faith. The evil one might be this attractive and promiscuous woman at work. Like she's fun to be with. She has a pleasing personality. And she senses a little bit of chemistry between the two of you. And she then exploits that. She boosts your ego. But she is a deceiver. And whoever is led astray by that is not wise. So we need to pray daily, deliver me from the evil one. 
Father, as I follow you today, help me to not be so naive as to get attracted to Satan's lures. Just help me to stay close to you and beyond the reach of evil people who have the capability of destroying me. In the Old Testament, Joseph was a slave in the house of Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife tempted him to commit adultery with him every day. And then one day, Potiphar was out of the house, and she approached him, and she actually grabbed him by the coat, or the cloak as they called it then, and she said, come to bed with me. And he somehow got out of that coat and ran out of the house. Like, and we wonder, like, how did he avoid that temptation? Like, here he was. He was in his mid-20s. He was single. He was lonely. All of his family were hundreds of miles away in Israel. And yet he said, I can't do this thing and sin against my God. So he was following God so closely that there was no way that he was going to allow this wedge to come in between them. See, the Bible says, come near to God and he'll come near to you. So God, he's in the business of delivering people. He delivered the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. He delivered Daniel out of the lion's den. He delivered Esther from this evil plot of Haman's to destroy all the Jews in Persia. He delivered Jairus' daughter from death, Bartimaeus from blindness, a man in Gadara from demon possession, and the Apostle Paul from drowning. So God is a deliverer, and he just loves for people to pray, deliver me from the evil one. 1 Corinthians 10 the only temptation that has come to you is that which everyone has. But you can trust God, who will not permit you to be tempted more than you can stand. But when you are tempted, he will also give you a way to escape so that you will be able to stand it. I love that verse. He's not going to allow us to be tempted beyond what we can stand. That means beyond what we can say no to. So anytime you are tempted, just think of that. Like, God's only allowing this because I can do it. I can do this. And here are three practical suggestions that I want to close with. First of all, acknowledge your incompetence. Acknowledge the fact that we are powerless to say no to this temptation on our own. And you know what I've observed? I've observed that a lot of Christian people underestimate their ability to cope with suffering. They, and they overestimate their ability to cope with temptation. I want to say that again. They underestimate their ability to cope with suffering and overestimate their ability to cope with temptation. Because we see other Christians going through really difficult circumstances, and we think, wow, there's just no way that I could deal with it the way that they are. But we would be surprised when we go through that and the power of the Holy Spirit is working in our lives. On the other hand, we're overconfident of our ability to cope with temptation. Like, I can go to that party without getting sucked into all of that. I can go on that midterm break down south without it affecting my character. I can go to that university without being negatively influenced. I can take that questionable Bible study and I'm mature enough to know when the person is saying something that's not biblical. We overestimate our ability to cope 
with temptation. So Jesus warns the Apostle Peter. He said, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. You're going to deny me. But Peter, like he's overconfident, and he thinks he can deal with this. So he gets himself in enemy territory, and he's warming himself by a fire. And three different individuals came up to him and said, hey, you're one of these Galileans. You're one of his followers, aren't you? And each time he denied knowing Jesus. He said, I've never been in the presence of this guy. So he was overconfident in his ability to resist that temptation. Gordon MacDonald said, an unguarded strength can become a double weakness. So acknowledge that Satan is cunning and that I am weak and that I am vulnerable. And then pray daily for deliverance from temptation. Like once we recognize our helplessness and we see our need for the Lord, we should begin each day by saying, Lord, I don't know what today is going to bring forth, but reinforce me against temptation. And sometimes you can anticipate in advance the areas of vulnerability and pray specifically. Like, Father, I'm going out of town tonight, and I'm going to be in a hotel room by myself. And, and if they have one of those channels on that TV, uh, I just pray that you will help me to watch the ball game or watch some other sport and then just go to sleep. Father, I'm going to a family reunion today. And there are going to be some old attitudes and some old habits that are going to be there. And I need to avoid them. Help me to resist temptation. Or Father, I'm going to be visiting some pretty wealthy people. And just help me to resist temptation because I have this tendency to let greed be stimulated in me. Just help me to be content with what I have. Just pray every day. Lead us not into temptation. And then the last aspect is do your part to avoid the temptation. If you have a problem with gambling, then don't go into a casino. If you have a problem with materialism, then don't go to the mall. If you have a problem with overeating, then don't go to an all-you-can-eat buffet. If you have a problem with sexual appetites, then don't go dabbling on the Internet. The Bible encourages us to flee immorality, to flee idolatry, to flee the evil desires of youth. So don't try to stand there on your own and beat it. You won't be able to. James 4, verse 7. So give yourselves completely to God. Stand against the devil, and the devil will run from you. Come near to God, and God will come near to you. So God is the one who will honor the victory. If you follow the Lord's commandments and you follow his lead, you're not going to be exempt from temptation, but he will empower you to overcome the temptation. He will make you exempt from additional temptations that are unnecessary, and you'll be able to say with the psalmist, the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. He leads me on the paths that are right for the good of his name. And even though I walk through a really dark valley, I will not be afraid because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Jesus said, follow me. And the closer we follow, the better off we are. It's going to lead us to life. Now, if you would like 
to leave here today knowing that if you died tonight, that you would be ready to meet God, then you need to be in a relationship with him. You need to have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You, if you haven't done that, if you haven't personally made him your Savior, you haven't publicly confessed your faith in him and been baptized into him, then we invite you to share that decision with us.